Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist.
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the nearly century-old Grand Labakan Hotel in Tahoe, California. I want to share a story with you as we're, as we're about to enter in a couple of weeks' ski season. When I was growing up in New York, uh, I never learned to ski. And, and the reason for that is there were at least six kids in every one of my classes in public school who showed up with casts up to their neck. And I figured, you know, there's, there's a message I'm getting here. I just don't think I want to do that. I would go sledding in Central Park. I figured, how bad could that be? Uh, but never did ski. I do ride a mean ski lift, and I love après ski. My next guest knows uh, everything, including before, during, and after. He's the board president of the Squaw Valley Ski Museum Foundation for the Sierra Nevada Olympic and Winter Sports Museum. Say that five times fast, otherwise known as snow. The snow museum, yes. Yes. And his name is Bill Clark. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. Let me guess. Are you a skier? I am. That's all I get from you? I am. Uh, from his earliest memory till the snow melted this year. And where are you from originally? Auburn, down in the foothills. Now, Auburn, California? Yeah. Near yeah. Sacramento? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually shot a movie there. Oh. And uh, right on the Delta, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a club there called AJ Bumps. A crazy place, but it's a beautiful town. Yeah. It really is. But So you're not that far away. No, no. But I spent most of my time from childhood up here ski racing and living in the mountains and uh, never never really went back. How have things changed? Uh, they have. Equipment's changed. Lifts changed. The mountains never change. The terrain never changes. The excitement never changes. Um, it's still the same experience that the gold miners had on their 14-foot sleds. Well, they, when the gold miners came here, you know, the, the whole story of the, the world rushed in, so to speak, for the gold rush. Um, they found themselves in the high mountains, and they en ended up, the Norwegians in the group, uh, remembering skis, and they ended up using skis in the Sierras, in the gold camps, and quickly turned to uh, racing on 14-foot long skis. That's a long ski. Straight down the mountain races, just speed, straight down speed races. Let me guess. Stopping was a problem. You know, they would run out onto the flats and jump off these long boards. Oh, they jump off before it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but if you can imagine in the 1870s, uh, humans going over 80 miles an hour, they had to be the fastest humans on the planet at the time. And their life expectancy? Uh, well, there were there was definitely some crashes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, they didn't have the gear they have now. Right. And they're going 80 miles an hour. Right. Not, right. you know, yep. bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a part of our history that's really unique. Uh, that some of the fir world's first organized ski races were actually in the Sierras. Right, but when there were no lifts, where there right. were, no, they were, so they had to hike all the way up. To, to they did. They would hike up the hill. Um, they'd line up four or five across and race down the mountain. Uh, but some of them were quite clever. Up in Johnsville, they would ride the ore buckets up the mountain on Sundays. So those are the original ski lifts. Yeah, you could almost say that was one of the original ski lifts anywhere, wow. riding up in the ore buckets. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Well, obviously what's changed now is technology, mm -hmm. um, better protective gear, right? Oh, absolutely. A lot shorter skis. 
Yep. And how has it changed for you? Are, are, I mean, how are you adapting to all that? Uh, I love, everybody loves the short skis. Um, you know, the new shape skis, um, you get on those things and they come around out of the fall line so easily and you kind of think, gee, where were those skis when I was a ski, young ski racer? Well, every <laughs> time I talk to a kid in my class in elementary or junior high school wearing the cast, they'd say, what happens? It was the binding, the binding. Yeah. The bindings have gotten better too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're still not going to get me on skis. You know that. Oh, well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> forced skiing. Uh, when people come here for the first time, when you came here for the first time, what's the first thing that surprised you and impressed you? Well, I grew into it as a as a youngster ski racing, so it just became a, a way of life. I think what surprised me, I you know, I grew up with the stories of my father who was a ski jumper and all the old Auburn Ski Club guys that sort of pioneered the sport around here. But just the depth of history and um, culture that skiing is. It's, it's such a unique culture, skiing. And, and, um, and the museum celebrates that. It is. And, you know, we're going to create a, a – we, we have there are collections. Um, the organization I work for has a collection on Donner Summit. And so when we create this new museum at the entrance to Squaw Valley, um, all these collections are going to come together in one location to be properly curated and, ex- and, and exhibited. Well, there have been so many stories about Donner Pass. Come right, on. right. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean <laughs> – Right. Yeah. Not a, not all of them pleasant. <laughs> yeah, it, it snows. <laughs> yeah, it does. What's the most interesting exhibit at the museum? I, I don't know if there's one that's interesting. I think the one that was surprising. We're surprising. I, I think surprising for uh, people that aren't immersed in the culture would be the gold miners on their, their speed skis and the fact that it was such a way of life in the gold camps. But it's not well reported in the literature because it was only the hard scrabble miners that spent the winters in the gold camps. Most of the folks went down to the cities. Now, of course, Squaw Valley refers to the Olympics in 1960. Right. Right? right? So you're celebrating that. Oh, absolutely. The best Olympics before or since. That wasn't Stein Erickson, was it? No. No, he's, no. he's, he's Idaho. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he came after that. He came after that. Yeah. See, I'm dating myself right now. <laughs> but the point is, back in the 19... 19- uh, that was the first Winter Olympics I remember watching. It was the first one that was televised yeah. live. Yeah. Amazing. And yep. you've got, I'm sure you've got some of those videos in there, too. We do. We have a lot of archival footage that's been digitized. Toto, I've been feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. My guest came from Juneau, Alaska, and he now is, is basically running Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue. It's a full-time job. Calvin Mitchell, how are you? Great. Glad so you went you. from one part of the terrain up in Alaska, which is a, a, a different kind of a challenge, to yes. Tahoe. What brought you here? Uh, I came through here on a vacation back in 1997. I was uh, traveling around. I'd, I'd been in Alaska, born and raised up there, and was getting tired of the the winters up there are very cold and wet. You think? <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, through my travels, at the end of my trip, I came through Tahoe in April, spent a week here, fell in love with it, went back home, that saved was up what, some 21, money. That was 21 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Moved down that 
August and been here ever since. Now tell me about, you know, Tahoe Search and Rescue. So Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue is, uh, you know, I didn't get involved in it until fairly recently, but uh, it was established in 1976. There was a couple of kids that skied off the backside of North Star in a blizzard and got lost. And there at that time, there was no organized backcountry rescue operations. So there was like a hasty phone call thing. People went out, found them, but it was too late. People involved in that first search are the ones that have founded Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue. What is about the terrain here that is particularly challenging? Well, most of our searches are during our storms, which we have awesome storms here. You know, winds of 100 miles an hour plus. That almost, would be qualified as an awesome storm. Yeah. Um, snowing at all different levels. I think one of the things that, you know, a lot of people are attracted here with our, our mountains and stuff, and like our reoccurring searches happen with uh, those, these storm conditions and people skiing off outside of the ski area boundaries, not knowingly, like off the backside of certain ski areas. That's a terrible combination. Yeah, it doesn't work very well. So those are, those are pretty common. And the other thing is, I mean, the access in the Sierras is one of the things that drew me to this area. Like, it's, it's easy to go out and use the mountains. Of course, I grew up with the, with the notion of the, you know, the Swiss search and rescue with the, the St. Bernard dog and the bottle of rum. Right. Uh, not the case anymore. <laughs> no, a little bit different. Um, but it's still, you know... A lot of times you're, you're, you're winging it. One of the big challenges out there in those storms is communications. Um, radios don't often work and stuff. So, you, you, you know, you're within your team. You're oftentimes on your own. And you got to make it back yourself. You do. That is the goal, yes. What keeps you doing this? Oh, I like it. It's, a, it's an awesome group of people. I like to, you know, give back to the community. It's something that, uh, you know, my, my wife suggested that I get involved with it. And, uh, you know, I went to the very first meeting that they had um, and uh, met these people that would get out of bed in the middle of the night in adverse conditions and go help somebody that they've never met before. And, uh, you know, that's that touches you and it, it you know. I was instantly attracted to that. I'm going to make a suggestion. Tell me if I'm right. After you rescue somebody and you find out, are you okay? Is the second thing you say to them, don't ever do this again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I often wonder, like, why did you not stop? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so part of our mission with it, search and rescue is, is, educational. To, is to educate. Yeah. Um, we go to the fourth grade, fourth grade classes um, throughout the community and do a, a class every year where we teach them you know, what to do when you do get lost, what not to do. Um, many times we'll find... What's the one thing you should never do if you get lost? Keep going. If you don't know where you're going, stop. See, my mother taught me that in New York City. She says, if you ever get lost at Macy's, stay in one position, I'll find you. Yeah, don't exactly. walk around the store. So oftentimes we'll find their, their tracks or something, and it'll still take us several hours to actually catch up to them because they just keep going, and they usually keep going downhill. And the second mistake the they make way. is thinking their cell phone's going to save them when they can't even get signal. They usually die. Yeah, there's no signal. And what's the one thing you want to do for people visiting here to educate them? Not the kids in the fourth grade, but the, but the people from the outside who come in to visit as, as tourists. Well, I would say... You know, to always ski with with a a buddy. Um, you know, a lot of people say that sometimes there's no friends on powder days, but always have a partner. Um, let people know where you're going, when when to be back. Often our searches we don't get called out till several hours after they've actually been and, missing. And every minute counts. Yeah, it makes a big difference. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. My next guest clearly scares me. 
<laughs> he does. He does. I'm, I'm going to tell you what he's done. He's, first of all, one of America's premier high-altitude mountain guys. The minute you mention the word mountain and high-altitude, I get scared. <laughs> um, he's done more than 15 summits of 8,000-meter peaks. We're talking including eight summits of Mount Everest. Yeah. And even one, this is the crazy one, without supplemental oxygen. That's and he right. lived to tell the turn. I mean, oh my God. Adrian Ballinger, welcome to the show. Thanks so much Seriously for having welcome me. to the show. <laughs> Thank you. This is the most intimidating thing I do right here. So. Well, you're doing okay. <laughs> Would you like some oxygen? Doing okay so Okay, far. good. I'll, we, we have it ready if you need it. Uh, you're not from here, are you? No, I'm from England originally. Was born there and lived there until I was six and then moved to the East Coast, and Massachusetts. So you lost the accent, except for a little Massachusetts accent I'm hearing. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Park the car. I got okay, fine. <laughs> what brought you here? You know, the mountains did. So after college on the East Coast, I moved out to Colorado for a number of years. I loved the mountains there, but the Sierra really drew me, both the incredible rock climbing and they get so much snow here, so much precipitation off the Pacific. But the expeditions that you're doing are all year round, aren't they? That's right. So I travel all around the world now. I probably spend seven to eight months a year out of the country living in a yellow tent on the side of a mountain. But this is still home. This is where I come back to. This is where my community is, my family is. You know, somebody wants to tell me, ask me, what's your favorite place? And I said, my metric is for a favorite place, and I have about 20 of them, and let's <laughs> see what you think. Yes. But my metric, my number one metric is where I sleep the best. Oh, I love it. <laughs> right? And yeah. I can imagine why this would be one of your favorite places, simply because the air here, yep. it knocks you out. Absolutely right. No, it's true. I, I'm so lucky to travel around the world and I could have chosen to live anywhere because I can run my guide company anywhere. But Tahoe is the place that I feel so comfortable. Now, earlier in the show, we were, you know, uh, we, you know, we talk about the terrain here. We talk about what people need to know when they come here mm. to be better prepared as visitors and active participants, right? Americans are terrible travelers. <laughs> you know, we don't hydrate enough. Yeah. We're not in the best physical shape. You, on the other hand, are intimidating because of what you do. <laughs> but what should people know before they come here? You know, I think there should be a healthy respect for both the wilderness we have here. It is really easy to get out of cell service and, and away from roads. And you have to be aware when you go to those places that someone knows where you've gone and, and how you're going to get back out if you do twist an ankle or something like that. Right. I mean, one of the branding messages for Tahoe will never be great cell service. Right. <laughs> it's so Just thought I mentioned that. It's amazing how it's so much better in so many of the developing countries I travel to I know. than it is here. Is that <laughs> intentional here? Maybe. It, it definitely encourages me to, to just not worry about it, to put the phone away. Well, you know, whenever I'm not able to get on the cell phone, for the first five minutes, I want to take hostages yes. or get on the Internet. And then you know what happens? I read more. I think more. Right. I enjoy my surroundings more. And that's part of what you do when you take your expeditions out. Absolutely. You know, we, we're not trying to take away people's modern conveniences, but that is a reality of a lot of the places we travel to and the big mountains I, I guide people on. And uh, and I do love that people connect in a different way when you're kind of together working towards a common goal 24 hours a day. All right. So you're sitting across the table from me now. I know it's radio, but you can see me. I can see you. Where are you going to take you? You're, you're looking right at me, right? Where do you want to where do you want? to take me well if we were going to go out tomorrow morning what i would take you to is our brand new via ferrata that my guide company alpenglow expeditions just built in squaw valley and uh, i'll have to describe a little bit about what a via ferrata is but a via ferrata is uh, the translation is iron road oh i thought it was called an ambulance <laughs> no so via ferrata were originally built in europe for troops to move through the alps and they're essentially an iron or steel cable that you clip into while moving through technical exposed rock climbing terrain and what it does 
does is it allows hikers, people who have never climbed before, to get into some of these special, more exposed places. And build their confidence. And build their confidence. And in the U.S., they almost don't exist. There's a couple scattered around the U.S. We're lucky enough to be able to, to we've spent three years building one here All in right, Squaw so Valley. All right, so literally walk me through this. I <laughs> clip in, yes. right? In my case, many times. Yes. Right. <laughs> and then, how high am I going? So the tram face in Squaw Valley is actually a thousand foot rock face towering above town. And you, if you feel good, okay, you, you climb the whole towering time. above town. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a neat thing. It looks intimidating. It's sort of been forbidden terrain all these decades at Squaw. And now we can safely take people there to feel that. And what happens if I get halfway up and go, uh, Adrian? <laughs> well, then you take the great escape. So there are three different levels where you can leave the face and traverse off, still connected to the cable, and then oh, take the hiking down, trail yeah. back down. So going all the way to the top isn't for everyone, but it's beautiful just to be on the bottom of that face. Uh, okay. How about if I just stay at the bottom <laughs> and look up? Would that be okay? <laughs> <laughs> you could do that too. There's also a hiking trail all the way around to the top. It's one of the best hikes in Tahoe. And how long will that take me to get up? About two, two and a half hours to hike to the top. And then to come down? Another hour, I'd say. About half the time to get down that it takes to get up. Or you could you could rappel down. Uh, there is no rappel route on the face yet, oh. but it's a great idea. Adrian Ballinger, the professional man <laughs> who scares the you-know-what out of me, the founder of Alpenville Expeditions. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel and playing the radio with no particular place to go. My next guest now become a regular on the show. <laughs> uh, the last time we were up here, he was on the show. I'm happy to have him back. He's the fire chief from the North Tahoe Fire Protection District, Mike Schwartz. How are you, Chief? Peter, I'm glad to be here. I'm doing great. Thank now, you. Now, since the last time we talked, you have had quite a busy time. It's been quite a summer. Uh, you know, California had a, a tremendous fire season. Most We had our engines or overhead people out for 85 straight days. We're just sort of getting everybody back right now. And, of course, it's high fire danger here at the base today. But isn't it true that you guys, when things are at peak season, is the largest fire department in the world? So Cal Fire, which is our state fire department, yeah. is the largest fire department in the world during the summer months. Uh, they surge to such a capacity. And then on top of that, you have local government and the California OES engine. So that is how California... That's Office of Emergency Services. Yes, thank you. I, I got to go. I got to translate, you know. No, it's a no, uh, no three-letter acronym room, right? I know. <laughs> no, we can't. <laughs> we have a rule on that on the show. I know. I remembered. Um, FYI. Oh, I just said you it. You did. Uh, bottom line, though, is the fire season here is a serious season because you've got all the bad ingredients. I mean, the beauty is unbelievable, but you've got wind, you've got low humidity, and you've got kindling. That's right. And we have people. Yeah, and, you let's know, not forget that. Yeah, you know, that uh, probably the number one cause of wildfires in, in the region is always man-caused. And uh, a lot of times uh, some of our serious fires have been holdover campfires or uh, even barbecues that have gotten ahead of people. Now, the last time we talked, you guys were experimenting with the drones. Right. I mean, to be able to spot fires. Fires and, and rescues. And you're using more of them all the time. Yes, and so the, the programs gained a fair amount of national notoriety um, because we did a the right way. We got all of our permits and uh, we have two drones. We'll probably get a third in the system uh, this year and we've used them a lot for these backcountry rescues. And I mean, for, for you know, obvious, not just for recreational use, th these guys really perform as a, a service for you guys. They do, and, and we don't run an amateur program. We use pilots and spotters. Um, the, the drone, we work with our command center, which also is responsible for all the aircraft in the area so that we know that we're not gonna interfere with firefighting aircraft. Um, we put the, when we put it up, we, we give them the coordinates and the air path that's gonna take, the flight path, uh, and then we usually use it mostly for surveillance to try to locate emergencies. And the thing is, considering the, the 
the density of your forest. I mean, you have to have some pretty good drone pilots. You do, because the canopy is pretty thick around here, and you know, trying to find an injured hiker or somebody that fell off a, the side of a cliff type of incident. Um, but that's what it's good for. And so you're not you're not just one hillside away, and sometimes it just people are not oriented to where they are when they're trying to describe where where the injury is. Now we're more or less in the shoulder season now, getting into the to the high winter season, ski season. Your responsibilities change dramatically there. They do. It's a big shift of seasons. We go in from our summer backcountry to starting to prepare for winter. But, you know, it's, it was really obvious to me driving in today, this has also become a recreational vehicle time. And I heard somebody describe it as the baby boomer season. Oh, please. I am one. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, your, your search and rescue work changes. It does. Right? It it's does. all four-wheel drive at that point. Yeah, you know, we're, it's at this time of year, it's, we're doing a lot of backcountry rescue because a lot of people are coming to recreate. This is a, you are here the nicest time of the year. We, we like to use, use this as a sh the local shoulder season. Okay, I got to ask you this question because it's an issue that's it's being somewhat addressed in regions all around the country, and that's this. If I want to go out hiking and I decide I want to go off the trail and I get lost or I get hurt and I got to get rescued, shouldn't I have to pay for that? If I go off the trail, if I do something that everybody says, please don't go to this area, it's an avalanche zone, and I go, and all of a sudden the, the mountain gives way, and you guys have to come out and rescue me, I actually believe, and I, by the way, as, as a firefighter myself, mm -hmm. I actually believe if you're asking people to put their lives on the line because you did something really stupid intentionally, you should be having to pay for that. There are some programs that do cost recovery on that. Um, we don't. I have those same feelings sometimes myself. As you know, the, we're going. We're putting people at risk. And I mean, I'm not talking about somebody who gets injured on the trail. Right. I, I'm not talking about somebody, bounds, or somebody who falls over and breaks their leg while they're biking or something. These things happen. Right. I'm talking about somebody who goes, "Oh, I'm not going to turn left. I'm going to turn right, even right. though every sign says don't turn right." Yeah. And then you got to go help them. You're right. I mean, that is serious burden on the system, and uh, I don't know if there's a way to, that people recoup it, but it certainly seems like they'd have some personal responsibility. Well, I think there, there might be some legislation, possibly. Yeah. You, know, it's, you know, it's interesting. There are some, some volunteer fire departments in the country, one I, I, particular in Arizona, that they ask you not just for a donation, but a monthly fee. Oh. And it's, it's almost like mafia extortion. <laughs> you know, if, you, if all of a sudden your house catches fire and, you, and you're, back, you know, you're behind on your bills, <laughs> the response time gets slower. I mean, I think I have a problem with that. You right. got to go and you got to go. But the point is, if somebody intentionally does something stupid, right. because look, let's face it, you guys are busy anyway. Correct. And, you know, the, the nice thing here, I guess, in California, and being that I've come from some other states myself, California has the California High Patrol also has rescue capabilities. So we're search and rescue usually falls to the sheriffs. The state steps up some resources as well. And those are all tax supported here. Um, but, you know, most people, are, even the most people are hurt are oftentimes on the trail. They're just not prepared. Well, that's okay. Now let's talk about that because that's where you can be helpful. First of all, people forget when they come here as visitors about altitude. Right. They, you know, they fly into Reno, Tahoe, maybe it's uh, five, 6,000 feet there, and then they come up and they're staying at above 6,000 feet at Tahoe. They wake up in the morning, it's beautiful outside, and then let's take a hike up to 10,000 feet. And they don't bring enough water. Water's hydration is the key. I would say that's number one. And it doesn't, if you go out all night and you're enjoying the casinos all night long, you get up in the morning, you're already dehydrated. Well, some of those casinos have two sections, smoking and more smoking. <laughs> That'll do it right there. But you know, it, it's funny. I had to learn about hydration yeah. as a firefighter because when we go off, when we get banged out, yep. there are four bottles of water in my outer jacket. Let's, we take that with us. And because you probably use it every time. Every single time. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, actually, my wife and I were talking on the way out here. She just hiked up to Rose Knob just the other day. It's like eight miles. It's above 10,000 feet. And she went through two and a half liters of water. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, when people start up these trails, there's now signs by some of the resorts that says, hey, if you're going beyond this point, do you have enough water, uh, you know, to make yourself hydrated? Because that is probably the single largest cause we have to people getting ill. And that's when you have a lot of, EM, you know, medevacs right. and stuff like that. Yes. And then they get hurt because you start to feel lightheaded. So, you know. Your decision making doesn't work out either. Yeah. yeah. First is altitude sickness, dehydration, hype, you know, hyperthermia. And then on top of that, um, then they start to trip fall and. And, and everything gets, gets compounded. Yep. Exactly. What's your biggest, you know, number of calls for what particular reason? You know, it's interesting. It is for falls. And, uh, you know, this is a very unique um, for ambulance services and fire services uh, uh, that falls would be our number one. But when you look at what we do for recreation, it all has to do with defying gravity. And so whether you're, our falls are skiing, our falls are off the mountains, our falls are, they're not just a, a trip on the carpet in the house so much. The, they usually have some forward motion associated with them too. Last but not least, let's get to the fun part of, of, of at least our job. Yeah. You guys are doing ride-alongs, right? We do. People can come and visit you. We do. We you are a destination. <laughs> it's funny because I read your article on, in the travel magazine about stopping at the fire station. asked about restaurants. Yeah. And, uh, that's, of course, that's what I do. You, of course. You want to know. What, I want to know where you go. And I want to know when I'm visiting somebody else's place, whether they eat. Because, as you pointed out in your article, that uh, fire departments are a great resource for local information. And it's funny because when I wrote that, the editors of that magazine said to me, you don't think people are going to say, are you kidding me? They're the best source. Absolutely. That was a great insider tip, and, and I, I do it everywhere I go, even in different countries. All right, so give me a restaurant recommendation real fast. Dinner. Uh, dinner, uh, Wolf, Wolf Gangs, Wolfdale, sorry, Wolfdale's right here in Tau City. You hesitated. I did. I got the name wrong. <laughs> Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. When you come to Tahoe, whether you're on the north or the south side, but especially uh, Tahoe in general, around the lake you get a chance to see, if you look hard enough, examples of really interesting old money. The history of that, uh, where people dressed for excess, built for excess, and lived for excess, going back to the, the late 20s, 30s, and 40s, all the way through the, 19, the late 60s. Uh, and uh, we're not just talking about, you know, where they shot Godfather Part Two and that, the famous scene, uh, the wedding scene, but of course my favorite, favorite scene, you know, Fredo, I knew it was you. No, I'm talking about individual wealth and the, uh, the display of that wealth. And one of those places was owned by a guy named George Wattell Jr. This is a guy who earned his money the old-fashioned way he inherited it and invested it and then built this amazing lodge called the Thunderbird Lodge or the Thunderbird House. And But something else he, he got, which if you're a boat nut like me, uh, is an amazing story in itself. Uh, it was built, I think, in 1939, finished in 40. Uh, 
in Michigan and then sent by train all across the country and then put in the water here in Lake Tahoe. And the name of that boat, of course, is the Thunderbird as well. Joining me now, the captain of that boat, Zach Steven, how are you? Good, how are you? But the story is not just of the boat, it's of, it's of the house itself. Absolutely. I think you said it best. It's a, um, you have to look hard enough to see it. Uh, it's the lone house over on the east shore of the lake there. And uh, I think it's the perfect example of how um, some of that old money and history uh, really tie into not only uh, Nevada history, Tahoe history, and how, how a lot of the land around this lake came to be. You know, there's an old saying that if you're rich and nuts, uh, you're called eccentric. And if you're not rich and nuts, you're called crazy. Uh, Mr. Wattel Jr. was eccentric. Absolutely. He he dove into so many odd little hobbies and, and uh, intricacies. Um, you know, when he was young, he ran away to join the circus and fell in love with animals so much so that... Uh, he, he had lions out there. Uh, he had a pet lion, Bill, that was his uh, essentially his best friend. Took it to uh, bars, restaurants, and would even drive him around in his Duesenbergs, uh, leaving claw marks in the dash. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you got to worry when you get in somebody's car and there are claw marks on the dash. Absolutely. You didn't want to be on this guy's bad side. No. But talk about the house that he built. Absolutely. It, it, you know, it, it was very modest for a man of his wealth. You know, he was very interested in uh, combining it with nature, building it around what was there. Uh, if you walk the paths of the Thunderbird, it weaves around these giant granite boulders that make Tahoe so unique. Um, it's built, you know, on this perfect little point where you have such a perfect vantage point of, of most of the lake. One of the best views of the lake is from the lodge, if, if I can say so myself. Oh, listen, you got up there to the lake and the lodge. You don't want to leave because it's not just the view. It's the air. It's the wind. It's the noise. It's just the noise of the wind in the trees. Absolutely. I think that's why he, he chose that spot. At one point, George Wattell owned almost 27 miles of the Nevada shoreline. Think um, about that. I mean, that's that, I can't even, I hate to say it because we know how deep Lake Tahoe is. I can't fathom that. <laughs> fathom, absolutely. Um, and for him to pick this particular point, you know, he had so much to choose from. But like you said, there's something about being there on his little point with his natural little cove and harbor uh, just made for the perfect little spot to but have. the design but the design of the house was, was particularly consistent with his with his uh, eccentricities if you will he had secret passageways he had tunnels he had an opium room he had a card room that he could escape from I mean, crazy stuff uh, false walls leading to safes and uh, hidden elevators and and all this you know played into the you know the old man would tell what is he doing over there he's so private all of the uh, you know mystery about him it just adds to the lore of it all well speaking of the mystery with all the stuff that you know that was hidden how much of the stuff that you don't know is still hidden At, who knows you know I'm always pushing on rocks and uh, and floorboards hoping I'll open the next secret passage so how many secret passageways are there uh, the tunnel is the, the main um, uh, secret uh, alleyway through the home. It allows. He even built to, a train in there. I mean, with a trolley, a little mine cart and mine shaft, help bring supplies in from from the boat. Unbelievable. And then he would entertain. He would entertain. How many wives did this guy have? This he had three wives over uh, the course of his life, and, and a few mistresses. One could only imagine. And even his uh, third wife, you know, longest standing wife, uh, who he was married to when he built the lodge. She went up there the first summer after it was built, and she immediately left. It was entirely too rustic for her. She was a proper city girl from France, and so <laughs> from then on, every summer he would come up to Tahoe and and hang out, and she would run off to France and go shopping with her uh, with her gal pals. So. 
And she had the money. Absolutely. Because she was married to him. Definitely helped. Definitely helped. Well, one of the things I want to talk to you about when we come back is the, you know, the crown jewel for me, and that's the boat. Uh, this is a boat that you have to see to believe, and it still operates. Uh, I was on the lake uh, yesterday on an 84-year-old boat called the Stardust. Um, unbelievable. Unbelievable wooden boat. I mean, first of all, the instrumentation on the boat it takes some getting used to. The gear shift, the, the, the throttle, it was, the, it was, it was wild. And it still runs. Absolutely. And, Better than ever. And say. Tell me about the It was built in Michigan. The boat was built in 1939 in Bay City, Michigan. Um, that's where a lot of these wooden boats uh, come from. You know, Chris Crafts, uh, Garwoods, and, and Hacker Crafts, such as the Thunder. It was designed by Hacker. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Was uh, that the first boat he designed? Uh, no, no. He, he was a naval architect, uh, designed boats, um, you know, all throughout his life. And but if you look at this boat with its combination of, I mean, immaculately, you know, varnished mahogany and the stainless steel around it, if you look at it carefully in terms of the design, the shape of the windows, the shape of the fairings, the shape of all the fittings, I mean, you're also looking at a DC-3. And George would tell Junior would be happy to hear you say that. He, he wanted a boat that resembled his planes. Um, um, he, like we said, he's into cars, planes, and boats, and he wanted the fastest boat on the lake to look like one of his airplanes. And when you say it was the fastest boat on the lake, how fast are we talking? I'm sure back then with the original marine engines, you know, you're pushing 40, 45 miles an hour out on the lake, which which in that time especially is, is fast for a 55-foot A 55-foot boat, that's not fast. That's supersonic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's pushing a lot of wood and a lot of weight. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the part that I love. You talk about the original marine engines. Now let's talk about what they put in it later on. The fun stuff. Yeah, the fun stuff. We're talking aer- <laughs> airplane engines, right? Ab- absolutely. These are the Allisons? Allison v12 airplane engines these are world war ii era um airplane engines and used they are noisy very noisy very noisy used in uh, p38 lightnings uh, most famously um and in 1962 bill Hare of harris casinos uh purchased the boat from uh, george Wattell jr and uh, he altered the boat drastically not only in looks but also in power so that was his idea to put those engines in there. Yep. He, uh, Harrow was a go-fast kind of guy, and the boat didn't go fast enough for him. So. Okay, so we're talking 40 about miles an hour with the marine engines. How fast did it go with the airline engines? Harrow was clocked going about 70 miles an hour in that boat. <laughs> and it didn't shake apart? <laughs> Not yet, that's for sure. Now, original engine still in it now? Uh, the the original uh, airplane a- Allison airplane engine. Yes, they've since been rebuilt. You know, over the years, these things need constant well, overhauling and whatnot. Something tells so. you you're machine tooling your own parts for these things. They're still out there. You know, every year though, there's less and less parts and uh, and and guys who can work on them. That's always the thing is finding the knowledge. To, All right. Uh, so now I I know nobody's listening to the show, so you can tell me the secret. How fast have you had it out? Fastest I've gone maybe 40, 40 miles an hour. Which again. And then when nobody was looking, <laughs> maybe forty five. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But the cool thing is, you still run it. Absolutely. It still goes out. It's a working boat, and I think that's the the the, the coolest part of this boat. And um, uh, it just gives people a chance to really appreciate, you know, some of that history and what it was like, you know, back in even in the '60s when Hera had it um, to go out on on a piece of art. Like and of said. course, when Hera's had it, you know, or Hera, depending on who it was, either him or the casino, mm-hmm. it was used for the high rollers. Uh, high rollers, entertainers, um, and and just special guests of uh, Bill Hera himself. So Tony Bennett, the Rat Pack, the Sinatra, Rat Pack, Sinatra. Sam, Sam 
Sammy, du- Sammy, Sammy Davis, Davis is, yeah. a, is a big one. There's a lot of stories of him on the boat. Back in back in the mid '70s, I mean, people may not remember this. I do because I was up here. This is my connection with the boat. Jerry Weintraub was producing, Frank Sinatra performing with John Denver at Harris, and uh, that was when they went out in the boat. Yeah, I was gonna say. I, I think I've seen a picture of John Denver on the boat. Yeah, so that's when they, probably that. That's yep. when they did it. They they wind and dined everything. Absolutely. And I'm sure if Sinatra was on the boat, they were pushing sixty. I'm sure they were. Only the best for him. Um, and and along that note, I think the coolest thing is 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 when we take this boat out and we pull up to docks. You know, we get so many people who come up. And over the course of the years, everybody who is at least from around Tahoe has a story about seeing the boat or uh, riding the boat and, and things like that. And to give you an idea of the design of this boat and being a boat person myself, the thing that fascinated me is it's not just a boat that's got like a main steering station and a flybridge. It's got two steering stations on the main deck one at the bow, because if you're standing in the back trying to drive this, you can't see where you're going. Absolutely not, especially a shorter guy like me. I need to <laughs> I need to hop up front and make sure I can see everyone in front of me, keep it safe. It's amazing. And now you, you raise money with it. Absolutely, yeah. We use this as a, a, a big source of fundraising. Um, you know, we take uh, not only uh, membership groups out, but also private parties. And, and most for the of foundation. Those, absolutely. Most of those funds are um, uh, used, uh, if they're not for gas, you know, they'll, they'll go right to the foundation. Okay, well, now that so. you mention it, this is not exactly the most fuel-efficient boat I've ever Absolutely seen. Absolutely not, no. Uh, what, these, is it, what is it burning? Uh, these Allisons generally burn about four gallons to go one mile, uh, and I didn't say that backwards, so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Joining me now, and I can say this about every one of my guests, she's not a native. She's not from here, but she's been here 16 years from Virginia, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, she's the publisher of Tahoe Weekly Magazine. Catherine Hill, how are you? Good. How are you? Okay. So I, can, I basically I can call you a local now. You've been here 16 yeah, years. Yeah, I think I count. What brought you here? Well, I came for a job interview in the area. I took one look at the lake and decided I was going to take this job no matter what it is they wanted me to do. So basically you were underpaid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah. Some negotiator you were. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, you know, when when I hear about, you know, in any location that we go to, you know, there's a weekly magazine, I go, okay, what are they going to put in there? I mean, how much news could there be? But you do have news. We have lots of stuff going on. You know, Tahoe is, I always say, is a boundless place for endless opportunities. If anything you want to do in Tahoe, you can do it here. And you've seen it over the last 16 years change radically. Oh, yes, definitely. There's a lot more to offered culturally, outdoor recreation, more events for people, more opportunities to get out there and enjoy the lake. How do you enjoy the lake? I'm a big hiker. I also like to get on the lake and go out in the boat, go paddle boarding. You know, I also cross-country ski and snowshoe, but you name it, you can do it here. All right, so let's, let's be real here. When mm-hmm. you paddleboard, I'm assuming once or twice you have fallen in. Oh, yeah. We've all fallen in. And it's a little chilly, <laughs> It's a it? bit chilly, Billy, chi- yes. bit chilly. Are you wearing any kind of protective gear? Uh, I usually do not, but it's always advisable to have a life jacket. But I stay close to shore where it is safe. We do not advise people go out beyond the buoys. Because the depth there is out of control. The depth, it, it goes really deep, very fast, and people can get hypothermic shock. So we advise people if they're paddleboarding, stay inside the buoys. It's less traffic, less waves. It's very safe there. And for people who don't understand the lake... And it's always a shock for people who are mm-hmm. first-timers. Yeah. 
I was out on the lake yesterday. It was almost glass. Mm-hmm. Today, small craft warnings. I mean, it was out yeah. there. It's whipping up. It changes rapidly. It's usually very windy every afternoon. But this time of year, typically, we do get very high winds. You'll see a lot of surfers on the lake. So we're talking to the fearless Catherine Hill, who doesn't wear any <laughs> wetsuit on the lake. Well, that, that is in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> what was the biggest surprise for you when you first got here? And what's the biggest surprise for you right now about mm. this? I think the biggest surprise when I first moved here, first experienced Lake Tahoe, was the beauty. Just the sheer beauty. I was overcome by it and just knew I had to make this part of my life. Can I sound like a really bad brochure for a second? Sure. Uh, we were over at the Thunderbird House. Mm-hmm. You know, the Thunderbird. Yep, Thunderbird Lodge. Thunderbird Lodge. And I'm sure the light was just perfect. I mean, we didn't plan it that way, but mm-hmm. it was. And you sit out there with the wind in your face. And you can see unobstructed for miles all the way across the lake with no high rises, no neon signs, nothing but greenery and hills and sky. Mm -hmm. And if that isn't the most seductive thing, I don't know what else is. It is. That's exactly what it is. You know, you're just in living here. You never get tired of it. Every single day, it takes your breath away. So that was your first surprise when you first got here. Now, what is it? The, the amazing community in Tahoe, the locals that live here, the locals that make this part of their life, it's just, it's a great community, not only in the fact that they love to preserve the lake and the mountains and the lands that surround it, but just in helping each other and building community here and hosting events to bring other people to enjoy this beauty so that we can live here. In other cities or locations like this, uh, you can't tell a similar story sometimes because yeah. the development interests are, are out of control. Uh, the, 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 the rush for, for faster money mm-hmm. and faster revenue uh, is out of control. The height of the buildings, the signage, uh, what they do with wastewater, yeah. all those things. Here, that's different. Yeah, it's very different here. There's a lot of agencies, uh, bi-state agencies with Tahoe Regional Planning Agency, locals, agencies, county well, there's, agencies. Well, there's cooperation between the two states yeah. that, you, that, the, that the lake that's borders, That's very unique. Right? Yeah, yeah, Nevada and, and California. Mm-hmm. And they just work together to preserve, you know, the beauty of Tahoe. Ultimately, all of our goals is to keep those major developments from spoiling the magnificent beauty that's here. And we haven't mentioned restaurants. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first came to, I'm not making this up, when I first came to Tahoe, cheeseburgers maybe? <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I would agree. I'm talking about <laughs> 1975, yeah. 1976. I mean, fish was basically fried, mm-hmm. right? We've gone a long way. Yeah. Tahoe has amazing eateries now. For every level, every cuisine, there's growing all of the time. It's become really a foodie area. And yet, it's still seasonal. You have a lot mm-hmm. of restaurants that will close at the end of this month, and yet fewer than uh, fewer and fewer close every year. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's just seeing you know less shoulder season, which has been all of the locals working together to bring more visitors to come in October, November, and the spring months. You know, it's when it's beautiful and there's not as many people visiting. We're talking to Catherine Hill, the publisher of Tahoe Weekly Magazine. So since you've been here for 16 years, I, I think I can ask you this question about mm-hmm. your favorite places to go. Let's, uh, it's, it's all around food. You know this. <laughs> Breakfast. Uh, my personal favorite is Donner Lake Kitchen. They've been around for a number of years. And what are you going to order there? I order something called the Hot Flour Tortilla, which is a huevos rancheros without eggs. Now, this place is in Truckee, right? This place is in Truckee on Donner Lake. Over in Truckee, they've um, been around for a number of years, and they have excellent Bloody Marys as well. So basically, the, the, the hell with the, uh, the tortilla, it's the Bloody Mary that gets <laughs> 
Yes. I mean, admit it. Come on. Yeah, they have excellent food, but the Bloody Mary doesn't. All right. <laughs> this is how Catherine Hill starts her day, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. What about lunch? Uh, lunch, one of my favorite places to go to is Supa. It's in the village at Squaw Valley, and they make homemade soups daily. Wow. Yeah. What particular soup? It varies. It depends kind of what they have seasonally. I like their tomato basil, but they also do a lot of really interesting uh, potato soups, ginger soups, but it's it's very seasonal, very fresh. And then um, I always like to get the grilled cheese with the hot pepper jam. All right. Let's talk about grilled cheese. I, you know, I have a, my metric for a place is if they can do a good grilled cheese. Yeah. Because other, it, it sounds like something you can't screw up, but you can. Yeah. Right? You could really screw up a grilled cheese sandwich. I agree. What makes their grilled cheese sandwich so good? I think it's, well, personally, like I said, it was the hot pepper cheese. I mean, the hot pepper jam. They make a jalapeno jam that they make it fresh in the restaurant. So this is a hot grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah, it's a spicy grilled cheese. It's got a kick to it. But I like spicy. I'm a spicy girl. Oh, oh, thank you very much for that that admission. Okay. And then, of course, you wash that down with your second Bloody Mary of the day or no? Oh, no. 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 no, Maybe just a little water or something. (laughs) So you're now you're trying to protect yourself. All right. Let's scoot into dinner. Here. <laughs> uh, dinner, it's a classic in Tahoe City. Wolfdale's, who's been here. He, I mean, he is a classic restaurant. California Asian By the way, fusion. you share that with, with Mike Schwartz, who's the fire chief of North. Oh, North yep. Th- he loves that place, Mike too. Mike has good taste. Yeah. Yep. What about Wolfdale's do you like? It's just fresh. It's seasonally fresh. Um, I'm a vegetarian, so they have vegetarian offerings that I really appeals to me. They have a Zen plate, which changes all the time what he's offering on there. A woman from Virginia, where they known, they're known for their bacon and their ham. And ham. And you are now a, a true vegetarian. Oh, yeah, now. for were many you, years. Were you a vegetarian in Virginia? You were not. I was. You weren't. You were? <laughs> yes, I was. You were the only one, I think. I maybe. was probably the only one in the state at the time. <laughs> now, since you've been out here 16 years, yeah. I'm sure everybody that you know from Virginia comes out to visit you. Oh, everybody, yes. And what surprises them? It's, they get taken aback by the beauty of the lake. They cannot believe that what I've told them is actually true and that the pictures are real and that it's, it's just breathtaking. Every moment of every day, it's breathtaking. And I think the Alpenglow at sunset. But then the train tunnels. Yes. People don't realize, you know, you know, Dwight Eisenhower once said, you know, America didn't build the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system built America. He was right for that era, but he's wrong. It was the Transcontinental Railroad that built America. Correct. And those are the tunnels that date back to that. Yep. So some of the original tunnels built during the Transcontinental Railroad era in the mid-1860s, uh, the tunnels still exist. They're not actively used, of course, but the tunnels are still there on Donner Summit. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own? bobbing about between my legs. My next guest, she's a transplant from Dallas. We forgive her, but she's the CEO of the Tahoe Truckee Community Foundation. Stacy Caldwell, how are you? I'm great, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we know about community foundations. I think the first one was in Cleveland, yes. right? But what does your foundation do? So our foundation is similar to other community foundations. There's 800 of them across the country, but they are all quite unique to the areas where they are. We have been around for 20 years, and we're focused on connecting people and opportunities to generate more resources for the good of the community. So give me an example of what you do. So we have the typical grant making where we 
um, open grants up to nonprofits in our community so that they can get the kind of funding that they need to do the great things they're doing. We also have those donor-advised funds and agency funds, kind of like a philanthropic bank. But more importantly, we take a leadership role in some of the tougher topics um, that our such region as? faces, such as housing. Yeah, right everybody now. I talk to talks about that. Yeah. Not enough housing. Right. Or it's the housing true. that there is is outrageously expensive. It's true. I mean, it's a problem throughout the country, but particularly hard in California. And then when you get into these tourist-based regions, it's really difficult. Um, so we have pulled together a collaborative of more than 29 agencies focused on making sure that there's workforce and affordable housing. We call it achievable local housing because we recognize not only do our lowest earning workers need housing, but so do our middle kind of middle class uh, sure. citizens. Well, because the definition of middle class is being redefined. It sure is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Then there are the natural resources. I mean, you're surrounded by forest. Absolutely. So forest is another area that we focus on. And we believe that not only does does our forest present a lot of challenges with the need for it to be thinned? But we are hopeful that we can find some market-based solutions to stimulate some innovation and new economic development around the thinning of the forest so that not only are we accomplishing what we want within our forest so that they're healthy and resi- resilient, but for our own community, as we are so reliant on snow and tourism, as things kind of change in the, in the climate, we want to be able to be resilient with our economy. So we're looking at, can that forest challenge provide an economic development opportunity? Are so you telling me there's area. climate change? <laughs> I'm suggesting that things have been pretty unpredictable here for the last five years. Yeah. I mean, the definition of the word season is mm-hmm. coming to play. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it was snowing last year as early as what? September. Yes. And word on the street is it's going to be snowing here next week in the high country. So oh my we'll goodness. see. <laughs> How do people who visit Tahoe get involved with the foundation? Well, first and foremost, you can visit our website at ttcf.net. Say it slower. ttcf.net. But for those who are here for a weekend and want to do some of the kind of service-oriented tourism, we have a website called Give Back Tahoe. Um, So you would go to givebacktahoe.org, and there we have 60 different nonprofits that post their volunteer needs. 60? Yeah, six zero. With real needs. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can find some something that might interest your family to get involved, whether it's rebuilding a trail or um, serving in one of our local human needs uh, services. And of course, in the process of doing any of that, you you meet the locals. That's absolutely right. Now, let's talk about transplants like you. Okay. Right? You didn't come here because you woke up one day and said, I can't wait to get to Tahoe. You got recruited here. I did. What was the biggest adjustment for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, coming from an urban area, you're used to using... You came from Dallas. I did. And you're used to using um, infrastructure as a landmark to get around and I just remember calling my mom one time. The signage here is not good. Well, I just said, everything is a big green tree. I don't know where to turn anywhere. <laughs> and so that was kind of a bit of a culture shock. But, you know, I So think basically you give directions by the number of trees you got to count before you true. get there. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Or is there a stream near there? Yeah. So that was a little hard to just orient in the mountains with the trees. But, um, you know, the other big culture shock was how close that the community is and how much they care. Um, And just bringing my kids up in an environment where those teachers really do know what's going on with my boys and really care about them. And um, everybody's just connected. You know, there are two words that start with C that I really focus in on, uh, conversation and community. And if you don't have either, you got a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's just so many ways that this community shows up to be involved in the future of this place. We are very engaged 
Um, our public processes are very robust. People really do have opinions because this is a special place. Change here can be difficult because everybody who comes to Tahoe sees how special it is. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. It's Jenny Charles and Jesse Dunn of the Dead Winter Carpenters. Jenny, Dead Winter Carpenters, what's, the, what's that name all about? Oh, it's a long story. <laughs> well, <laughs> give me, try it. Um, you know, Tahoe, Carpenters in the Den of Winter. It's kind of hard to find work. It's cold. It's dreary. Your hands get really rough, you know, and musicians like to say they have nice hands and, you know, keep them warm and vibrant so they can play their instrument. So but where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from the Bay Area, the San Francisco so Bay Area. So not that far away? Not that far away. I grew up coming here. I actually started skiing at Alpine when I was two years so old. So you're a ski bum? Basically, yes. And so is my family. My dad's been on ski patrol at Squaw for about 30 years. All right, so let me see if I get this straight. So you got here because you wanted to ski. Then you had to find work. Exactly. And you figured out music wasn't such a bad idea. Exactly. And that was it. That's it. Well, How many bands? How many different bands? How many different bands am I in? No, or, or were you been before this? Oh, man, too many to count. <laughs> I've been in uh, reggae bands with my brother and country bands with my family, uh, bluegrass country with my family as well, and then other different conglomerations of all different sorts of types of music and, and bands. And, and, and you perform here? You perform I at, do. Yeah. We perform here and uh, Dead Winter Carpenters tours nationally as well. Cool. But this is home. This is definitely home. All right. So how would you describe your music now? We kind of describe it as a little bit of alt-country, rock, bluegrass, fusion. <laughs> and I got to ask, because I always ask people when they come on the show, your favorite place to eat in town? My favorite place to eat in town. Ooh, that's a good one. Um... That's tough. There's a lot of good, there are a lot of good places. Hmm. How about? I like Firesign Cafe. I know it. <laughs> not, not bad. Really good. Okay. <laughs> Works for me. Oh, and what do you order there? Oh, the cat, what is it? The cowboy, cowboy breakfast. That's right. The cowboy <laughs> breakfast is good. And uh, we, I mean, I guess we don't go out to eat too much because we're on the road so much. Wait, wait, you so. just, you just, you just dispel the rumor. I didn't know that musicians ate in the morning. <laughs> Well, now we have a two-year-old daughter, so it doesn't matter, no matter what time, what time. <laughs> we get home. We, you know, we're up at seven no matter what. So what, what do you and, and Jesse want to play for me today? We're going to play a song called Find Your Home. Oh, and, and it's about what? It's about traveling around and uh, finding your home, exactly what the title is. All right, let her hit.
rock and roll band Where the stars all go down the music row And the good people understand We learned to play sweet melodies When we were little kids Now we ain't got time to look back on nothing And regret anything we did Still we gotta roll I love that. Jenny Charles and Jesse John. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.